0: And this is the end of of the teaching in the upper room. Now, I did mention a few weeks ago that perhaps they had left the upper room at some point. In my mind, they're still there. And and we call this part of the upper room discourse, so uh, we'll just assume they're still there. But this is the end of the teaching. Uh, In chapter 17, it's a prayer that Jesus prays for the disciples. And and uh, this whole thing started uh, back in chapter 13 with uh, Jesus. Uh, well, it said John writes this about Jesus uh, that he knew his hour had come, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And we're going to pick up on that theme of love again. There are many themes that have uh, we've seen uh, repeated we've approached them from different angles and so as we uh, close out the teaching section of this upper room discourse uh, we'll take a look at what Jesus is saying to his disciples And, and these are the words of Jesus John 16 beginning at verse 25 I have said these things to you in figures of speech I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The words of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that Jesus gives us. And as we look at them, we ask that you'll speak into our hearts that we may know better your truth and be built up in your word through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as the uh, teaching has gone along here in the upper room and and jesus has spent this last time with his disciples before his arrest a lot of the teaching has been trinitarian in nature he's talked a lot about the holy spirit and and there is a question just providentially uh this week i i stumbled across a a video short video actually from reform theological seminary and it was uh dr blair smith and and he was discussing uh, why the Trinity really isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. Why did it take so long for God to reveal uh, the Trinity? There are indications in the Old Testament. There is talk of the Spirit. I will put my Spirit in their hearts. There are the, the Psalms and, and other prophecies concerning the Messiah and that word "sun" gets sprinkled around every now and then, the indications are there, but it's not as vivid as we see in the New Testament. And the question is, why? Why did God wait so long? Well, there are many interesting ideas behind that. Um, uh, Dr. Smith brought up uh, Gregory of Nazinius, and, and he's one of the... Cappadocian Fathers, or we call them the Cappadocian Three, uh, and this is back in the 300s, so the real early church. And, and he came on this idea of, of the progressive revelation, that, that certain things had to be in place before God could reveal himself. And, and part of the issue is they lived in the Old Testament in a time of polytheism, where there were all kinds of gods. And so God was very clear in telling them there is one God, the famous Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And he had to firmly let people know there is but one God. And B.B. Warfield uh, did a lot of great work uh, when he thought about the Trinity and and. He's a little more contemporary. He was born in uh, 1851, I want to say, uh, but the late 1800s. And B.B. And Warfield, he also had this idea of uh, progressive revelation. And, and he put it in terms of redemption, that there are some redemptive purposes built into the revelation of God. That certain things had to be in place before the Son could be revealed to the world. In Galatians 4.4, Paul writes that at the appropriate time, God sent his Son. And when the Son came, then he could be a little more clear about there's a Father and there's a Son. and, And then he would teach about the Holy Spirit, and we've seen that as Jesus has taught his disciples here in this upper room, teaching about the Holy Spirit and teaching about the Father, which he had done throughout his ministry. And and he continues on uh, with these ideas then. And he tells them in in verse 25, I've said these things to you in figures of speech and and the hour is coming uh, when I'll no longer uh, talk to you in in figures of speech. And, And in this idea of progressive revelation jesus is going to be able to say even more after he's resurrected or perhaps a better way to put that would be the disciples will be better able to understand after they see jesus resurrected but right now they're they're starting to grasp this a little bit the father the son he's talked about the the holy spirit and Jesus continues in in that day you will uh, you will ask in my name and and we talked about that last week asking in Jesus' name we got that from uh, verse twenty three uh, last week but but he continues on and he said for the Father himself loves you and then there's this element of faith he loves you because you have loved me and, and believed that I came from God. And, and there's that element of faith in there, but even, even our faith is a gift from God. Paul makes that very clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. We are saved by faith, and, and we can't even boast in our faith. That is a gift from God. But I do want to spend time thinking about the Father. Now, the Old Covenant believers or the Old Testament believers didn't really call God Father, except in the sense of He created all things and that He was the Father of their nation, the Father of Israel. That's kind of the sense they had of of God as the Father, but they didn't call Him Father really in a personal sense at all. But, But now that the Son has come, The Father can be known better. And Jesus, he came right away talking about the Father. When you think about the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew, Matthew 5 through chapter 7, uh, there were frequent references to the Father. In fact, he even taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven now, the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. He is the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. We know that, but the, the revelation of God is, is progressing. And B.B. And B. Warfield, if I can uh, quote him, I mentioned he does some uh, great thinking about the Trinity, and, and he's, he writes this, the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber, richly furnished, but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it, but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. Christ is the light that shines, and part of that light lights up this dimly lit room, as B.B. Warfield says. And we're able to see the Father clear, a little more clearly. Jesus had said back in chapter 10, I and the Father are one. And, of course, that caused a big ruckus. In fact, the Jewish people picked up stones and were getting ready to throw them at Jesus when he said that. Early in the evening, uh, Jesus had told his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And here in, in verse 27, the Father himself loves you. And I do want to spend some time pondering this and and making us aware of what this means and how we approach this. Because often, I'm afraid, often in our teaching and and in preaching, I will be the first to to confess uh, my fault here. Unintentionally, the wrong message gets communicated sometimes by how we say it sometimes we get the gospel a little backwards but I want to focus on the father's love so that we make sure we get it right because sometimes like I said we have it thought out in our heads but then the words come out we'll kind of spin things around a little bit often when we say the gospel it can sound like this you are a sinner You're sinful, but I have good news for you. God loves you because Christ died for you. But that message is just a little bit backwards. And and I want to spend some time so we can get that straightened out, not only uh, in our heads, I think a lot of us do have it in our heads, but so that we are conscious of it as we speak the gospel. Uh, Derek Thomas, just providentially again, I happened to watch a video on him as he was uh, uh, going through the first part of Romans chapter eight, and and he makes the statement: the gospel is more than Jesus died on the cross for me. The gospel is Trinitarian in origin and shape, and he's talking about Romans chapter eight verse three, and and that reads. For God, and and he makes it clear that's God the Father. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. and, And there's a lot there. But what Dr. Thomas focuses on in that, and I quote him again the love that rescues and redeems us initiates. As much in the father's heart as it does in the son's heart and when we think of John 3:16, one of the most famous Bible verses it reads for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life in other words if I can kind of straighten this out and I'm going to be overly dramatic just to make the point here It's not as though God looks at the Son and says, I hate these sinful people. You better do something about them. Sometimes that's what comes out in our message. But that's not what we read in Scripture. It's more that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are saying, these people have sinned. And there's a separation between us now and they'll never be able to enter into our glory. We're separated, and we need to be reconciled, and here's how we can do that. They need a Savior, and they need faith. Sinclair Ferguson writes, When you have seen Jesus' love for you, you have seen the Father's love. The Father loves you. And Jesus, when he's resurrected and he's talking with Mary Magdalene in the, in the garden, and, and he tells her, go and, and say to my disciples, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father. He is your Father. And this idea of ascending to the Father, Jesus uh, talks about it here in verse 28 of our passage. I have come from the Father, or... I'm into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And, and here's pretty much a summary of Jesus's uh, earthly mission, if you will, or at least his earthly career. He, he left out the death and resurrection, but the disciples are starting to get this now. Uh, you came from the Father and are here, and you're going back to the Father. And, and the disciples, they're saying, ah. Now, now you're speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. And and in their defense, Jesus had been talking in parables a lot throughout his ministry. He had just recently talked about a, a woman in labor, and and uh, and now they're they're starting to put this all together. Now you're speaking clearly, and now we know uh, that that you've come from. God they have a clearer understanding and they're getting a better grip somewhat on on the Trinity but notice they have this attitude uh, now we get it and we're never going to lose it And, and they are perhaps a little overconfident as humanity can often be now we know everything and we'll never forget it uh, there may be a little bit impulsive, much like Peter's confidence earlier in the night, uh, in the evening when Peter uh, said, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere, I will even lay down my life for you, and then Jesus had to tell him, well, no, actually, you're going to deny me three times. And, and here are the disciples, and you wonder if Peter was, again, one of those saying, Ah, now we got it. We're never going to lose it, Jesus. And, and Jesus has to temper their uh, misplaced enthusiasm just a little bit. He answers them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. You'll be scattered, and you will leave me alone. And, and this is part of prophecy Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7 where it reads strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and that hour uh, quite literally is here as I mentioned this is the end of the teaching then Jesus is going to pray a prayer that takes less than 5 minutes to pray and then they're going to go to the garden within the hour they're going to scatter When Jesus gets arrested, it's literally there. And Mark is the one who records uh, most starkly what happens when Jesus gets arrested. Mark chapter 14, verse 50, they all left him and fled. And Jesus knows this is going to happen. And he's telling them this not to discourage them, but rather to comfort them. He wants to give them peace. He wants them to know later on, this is going to be okay. I have said these things, he says in verse 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And what's interesting, John records uh, later on when Jesus comes back, he's resurrected, and the disciples are sitting in a room together. There's more than perhaps what are uh, with Jesus right now. And Jesus appears among them in chapter 20, verse 19. And Jesus, the words he says are, peace be with you. And you wonder if the disciples who were in that room and were also with Jesus right here put the two together. Uh, he told us this. Because there is peace with us. This is all okay. There is peace with God because of Christ. Because of what he's done. Jesus tells them, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And this idea of overcoming the world, this recalls back in chapter 1, verse 5, this great prologue that John gives at the beginning of his gospel where he writes that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And I like the present tense that John uses when he says that. The darkness has not overcome it. That is still true today. The darkness of the world has not overcome the light. You know, just recently I was asked by someone uh, who's about to start reading the book of Revelation. And uh, this person asked me about it. they said, well, it's a difficult book. And and I think what's happening, this person will ask me about certain Bible passages. And I think uh, it's they're reading through the Bible in one year. And we're kind of getting to the end of the year. So they're up to Revelation now. And they've done this before. And, and so they know... It's hard to interpret you know and and they were asking how should I interpret what what, what do you what's your advice and and there is a lot in there there's a lot of figurative speech and and what's literal and and what's just a figure what what's the time frame Are, are times being repeated on top or how do we take it and there's a lot to it and I said well You can ask me specific things as you go along. I'll give you the ideas that are out there. I'll give you even my ideas if you care for that. But here's what I want you to remember. When you start it and all the way through, here's the overriding message. Christ wins. No matter what else you read and what you can't figure out in there, notice this. Christ wins. There's nothing in this fallen world despite all the crazy things that are happening that's outside of god's control there's nothing that surprises god he's got it all in hand and he's going to win and christ said i have overcome the world and when we see that right here in this passage i want us to think just for a moment overcome in the terms uh in terms of your sinfulness in the fallen world, he has overcome your sin, all of it. Because that's what he really wants his disciples to know. Yes, you have a fallen nature. And yes, this world is full of half-truths, and it's full of temptations. And it's got things completely backwards, quite often it's often opposed to the things of god tries to mess with scripture god's word yes we live in that world also yes god could destroy the world in the blink of an eye if he wanted and he could have done that at any point in history just destroyed the whole thing said he's had enough and that's it but Jesus says, when I have overcome the world, let me quote from D.A. Carson who writes this. Jesus's point is that by his death, he has made the world's opposition pointless and beggarly. The decisive battle has been waged and won. The world continues its wretched attacks, but those who are in Christ share the victory he has won. They cannot be harmed by the world's evil. And they know who triumphs in the end. From this they take heart and begin to share his peace. And Jesus' teaching here in the upper room closes on this triumphant note. He has overcome the world for all those who believe in him. In the United States this week as we celebrate Thanksgiving and think of all these things that we have to be thankful for. At the top of the list should be what Christ has revealed to us in his teaching. That you have a Father who loves you, and a Son who loves you, and a Holy Spirit who loves you. And this one God is triumphant in all of eternity. And you have victory in Him. Father, you have loved us. And sent Jesus to redeem us. Oh Jesus, you have loved us and assumed our nature. You've shed your own blood to wash away our sins. You've brought righteousness to cover our unrighteousness. Holy Spirit, you have loved us and you have entered our hearts and implanted their eternal life. You've revealed to us the glories of Jesus. Three persons, one God, we bless and praise you. We thank you for love so unmerited, so unspeakable, so wondrous, so mighty to save the lost, And bring us to your knowledge and to your kingdom for your glory. All praise, worship, and thanks to you, our holy God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.